Hello and welcome to the first episode of my podcast. I am your host, Sasha, and I'm in conversation with my dad, who I'm, I wanted to invite onto this show to talk about some areas of expertise that he has in relation to what's going on in the world today with social justice, wealth inequality, and other issues that probably a lot of us are faced with that I think he can hopefully help um, give some useful advice on. Okay, so we're, we're here to uh, talk about uh, some of the economic uh, concepts that uh, uh, may have some relevance for uh, thinking about uh, creating a higher level of social justice in, in our society. And there's uh, a lot to drill down on in particular economic topics that we can start off with. So the first one up is um, how do you how do we create a living wage? And um, one idea is can you turn a minimum wage into a living wage? Which is unfortunately there's such high levels of inequality in society, and uh, people, especially with uh, out education, are often stuck in low paying jobs. Uh, the government doesn't do all that much to set wages uh, apart from. Um, so there is a federal minimum wage. Uh, wages can be addressed mostly through through the market uh, in terms of supply and demand of uh, available labor and uh, the, the need for labor. Uh, but go government can intervene at certain levels to have um, wage setting. Um, there's you know legislation at federal levels, state levels, county levels, and city levels. So. Uh, currently, there is a federal minimum wage. It's not very much. Uh, and you, you also said that um, particularly people without education don't make very much, but I would argue that people mm. with bachelor's and master's degrees today also hardly make enough money to survive. That's true. There, there's a sliding scale there, I think, and I was speaking in uh, broader generalities uh, that it's harder to find good-paying jobs uh, without an educational background. It depends on the what the what the degree is in, of course, and experience uh, as well. But the, but that's a good point. There's a lot of very smart people with lots of degrees that that still have trouble finding um, uh, wages that can support them themselves with. So, um, in creating um, a living wage, you know, let's think about how wages come into effect. As I mentioned, there's the supply and demand curve for available labor and the need for labor. Um, governments usually don't impose uh, too much in the way of wage standards, but they're starting to. So the federal government, there, there would be an easy solution if there was congressional will to greatly increase the federal minimum wage that would apply to all states. Uh, that The current f uh, federal minimum wage is so low, it's I think $8 or something like that. Um, we can look that up and Google it, uh, what that exact number is. Uh, but it's clearly not sufficient. Um, one of the problems with creating a higher federal minimum wage of say 15 or $20 an hour or something much more reasonable is that uh, there's a different uh, costs of living in different parts of the country so that uh, what employers could bear to pay out for what you know money they make to pay their their workers um, they may make less in states where things are cheaper and uh, where the, the the going wage is is less so that you know saying that if you have the average wage is ten dollars in some location uh, and then you're going to raise it to 20, that it doubles an employer's cost of labor. Somehow that has to come in to be able to, into effect to be able to, to pay them. Um, but this is part, you know, the, the federal government didn't used to spend very much time on wages or anything in the labor market, but slowly over time they started taking a look at worker safety, uh, prohibitions against child uh, um, employment and exploitation, um, safeguards in the you know in non-discrimination in workplaces. So there is some um, 
uh, level of federal uh, oversight in the wage area. But I think it's just a question of political will to say we're going to greatly weigh, uh, raise a, uh, the federal minimum wage. So that could create a, an important um, impetus for states to be able to do the same because states' laws are uh, then going to be um, overlapping with the, the federal laws in this area. States have some level of um, jurisdiction in employment and worker areas more so than the federal government. They set uh, um, standards for um, setting out uh, a workplace uh, safety as well and uh, other in initiatives. But again, there's typically not a statewide law in any state on what the minimum wage should be. Uh, most of the living wage initiatives have come, taken place in very high cost uh, locations, typically in urban areas, um, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle, Portland, these places on the West Coast that have higher, uh, especially much higher costs of housing that uh, make it really impossible for anybody to live on what is the going wage. So they, they, these, passing these laws have been political battles where, you know, the small business owners often fight them because they don't have the money they claim to pay workers higher amounts. They, they claim that this will result in less level or, excuse me, lower levels of, um, employment because they'll be only be able to afford fewer workers. So it'll have the effect of narrowing the amount of jobs available if a given employer says has $100 to pay and if they have to pay $20 an hour, they only can have five workers, but if it's $10 an hour, they could have 10 workers. So that's something to balance with, uh, but it creates a higher cost of living. It, it, excuse me, it creates a higher cost of doing a business in these places in addition to having a higher uh, cost of living. But uh, there has been success at the um, uh, mostly municipality level to institute state wage uh, increases and mandating minimum wages. Mostly these have been done in a way to ameliorate the burden on business owners by having them phased in over a period of years so that whatever the current rate, say it's $10 and it's going to move to 15, they may add a dollar a year to add to, um, you know, to add up to say $15 over that period of time. Yeah, they did that in Los Angeles with the minimum wage that they passed, but it will phase in over a period of, I think, seven years. Seven years, okay. And, um... In those seven years, for one thing, people continue not to be able to survive with what they're making. And also the cost of living and the cost of rent continue to go up in those seven years. So that by the time we have the $15 minimum, it's, it's barely worth it. It's barely keeping uh, track with Now we need a costs. $25 minimum. Or in fact, right. somebody did research on how much it would cost to be like a single mom with one child um, trying to survive and make a living wage in Los Angeles. And they're imagining that she's a banker at like Chase Bank or something where she makes $25 an hour, which is more than what most people make to begin with. And they figured out that actually the, the minimum that she would need to be paid in hourly wages to survive and not be in debt was like $33 per hour. Yeah, that, that was part of the congressional testimony, I, I believe, of Jamie Dimond uh, by the H House of Representatives, uh, where they were drill drilling him on, or grilling him on, does he really know what it takes to survive and what, what does his company pay out? And I, I believe it was Representative Katie Porter of Orange County was uh, leading the charge to just run circles around him in terms of <laughs> him not understanding what it takes to survive even on what is deemed a good wage but that I think it was also per portrayed that you know uh, that the bank that year made how many billions of dollars in profit and why are the wages what they are when all these people they hire can, har can hardly live on it so that it gets us to sort of a broader question of uh, wealth redistribution and maybe some preliminary thoughts on 
what the modalities of wealth distribution historically have been. One clear one that's been around for millenniums is warfare. You know, basically one group of people says, we're going to take come into your land, take your stuff, it's ours now. That's wealth redistribution. They take it by force. Another uh, time-honored mechanism is taxation. This has been around for thousands of years and basically stands for some central authority, the government, uh, imposes a tax under some system uh, that can vary and then they take the money to spend on government needs. Uh, Often then a small group of people is put in charge of uh, what is collected. Uh, Historically, this may have been for personal things, for a royal family, to wage wars, uh, not as often to build roads or things that uh, would improve public health that would serve most of of the people in in the country. more recently, the government taxation has become more progressive in different countries around the world where, but again, there's a central government or some governmental body deciding how the money gets spent. So one kind of comic approach of this is that, gee, when people vote, should they be able to vote for how all the tax money gets spent? But that would probably end up with a very unfair outcome that people that um, make lots of money, uh, like when they pay their taxes, they would get more of a say in how the money gets spent. So that's not exactly one person, one vote. So So you're imagining that for every dollar you're taxed, you would have a greater proportional vote? Yeah, like when you send in your tax return, you know, if you owe $1,000, you can indicate how it should, should be allocated for... Um, the government to spend on a different programs that the government's in charge of. But this would result in the wealthy having a much disproportionate vote because they pay more per person in, in, in taxes. This was more of a joke. It isn't you know, a serious yeah, consideration. But, but you could a, also have people vote and not have it be tied proportionally to how much they were taxed. That's true, yeah. And, that's, and that would be more fair, and that would make sense because people do want to have a say over what their okay. tax money is spent on. For example, most people would probably want it to be spent on education or healthcare yeah. instead of... Well, this is what we have now is that like at the federal level and even at the state level, the Congress votes for tax bills on what the uh, uh, budget will be and what the appropriation level will be. And people get their say by indirectly voting for their representative, which then that is very indirect. Um, uh, But there is the power of the people to vote for candidates that have more progressive tax uh, policies in mind. And uh, that's mostly what we have today. There's lots of uh, different types of taxation that's not necessarily designed for income redistribution, but it can be use that the general tax money can be used for payments to poorer people like welfare, Medicare, unemployment benefits, Social Security benefits, although Social Security is paid uh, by worker wages, so that's not the same uh, basis there. Uh, but in, in, in that sense, um, the government body is responsible for how that money gets allocated and it's subject to political pressure you know in terms of uh, lobbyists that influences members of congress to uh, a vote for certain types of projects or have um, benefits and or exemptions for certain industries to first so they can lower their their tax bills and that's there's an art of dodging taxes and as they say uh, tax evasion is perfectly legal. Tax avoidance is illegal. So hiring a good tax counsel or accountant uh, to lower your taxes is often a way to avoid what is intended in terms of wealth distribution because people have a natural t- proclivity not to want to pay their taxes. A third um, newer mode of wealth distribution could be considered uh, what we'd call a negative income tax, and that is a oh, that's in, um, universal uh, um, negative income taxes payment in, to uh, people. Sacred economics. 
Yeah. Book yeah. So a, a, a good example, the state of Alaska has a negative income tax. There's no tax uh, income tax paid. And in fact, the government gives people money. Uh, I think it's currently two or three thousand dollars a person. And the way they pay for it, this is the key thing is how do you pay for that? Um, they have a system uh, through the Alaska Permanent uh, Fund that uh, all of the state lands that have mineral interests or oil and gas, uh, they take a certain portion of that and or, or they take most of that, put it in a trust fund for future generations of Alaskans and then a certain portion of that gets used for current outflows to make those dividend payments they're called to each of, of the citizens there. Not all states have the wealth that Alaska would to be able to do that, uh, but it's, it's one model of how uh, uh, the government can take some of the tax revenue that they gather from the, the general tax laws and redistribute it directly in the form of programs, but there's some observation that that can be inefficient as opposed to making direct payments to individuals, perhaps under a qualification schedule for people that are of need or on a progressive basis for uh, what, what, what your needs would be. Uh, there's some recent studies that show that um, with some experiments that have been done that when people are given a choice of either participating in a government-sponsored benefit program or if they were to get a direct payment, they tend to be more efficient in utilizing the direct payment because they know what they individually need as people rather than the government imagining what they need or having to qualify for certain programs food stamps, uh, medical aid through Medicare, of, of that sort of thing. Um, and yeah. I think a lot of jurisdictions are starting to look at this as a way to help build growth in their communities. For example, when more people have um, better means, it supports the community. People are typically spending the, the money they would receive in that in their own community to buy groceries, to buy services that they need. Uh, so I think that's something that the federal Congress should consider to do on a national basis and yeah, would be an this, effective way to do that. This model is used um, in the charity Give Directly, um, who just basically believe the same things in that people know best how to spend money in a way that will be beneficial to them and they just locate some of the poorest communities in the world and just directly give them cash for them to use as they will. Yeah, and that's, um, as we mentioned from the Alaska um, example, there's a question of how do you pay for this? Alaska has a very good mechanism because it's a dedicated resource that then can be uh, allocated to make these payments, but on for other governments, other um, levels, uh, it would probably have to come out of the general tax revenue raised and then it's a, always a question of balancing well what if you're using the money for that what are you not using it for and that gets back to the earlier question of who's deciding where that tax money goes and what those programs are it's it's the politicians uh, who are often subject to uh, intense lobbying to uh, do this there's also the political perception that giving money to people especially Poor people who may be more uh, uh, in need of this type of aid. Um, other people will view it as just um, unjust charity, or they're you know people are lazy and they're getting money. They don't want to work. This sort of thing. But that is um, something that has to be addressed, sort of, or through a resocialization of people in general. That there is clearly economic benefit to do this, but positive spin sort of has to be put on how to do that because it, it's ultimately going to be a political process for how um, the, something like that would, would come into effect. So. Um, for all of these topics that we're going to go over, I wanted to know how individuals or collectives can affect change being individuals or groups 
um, who are probably not involved in politics um, as a career, um, but who might be like activists or engaging. You might not, maybe you know about this, but like in, especially recently with um, the many murders of black people at the hands of police that have been coming to light, a lot of like mutual aid funds have popped up where people are just pooling their money to bail people out of jail or to support people who are struggling and that's just citizens and it's often you know people who maybe don't make a lot of money themselves giving what little they do have to people who have even less um so and you see that a lot you see that the most charitable people are often the people who have the least um how can these people organize or like what advice do you have around these issues that we already talked about like minimum wage turning minimum wage into a living wage um i think with that one that one should be local or like based on geographically where you are because the economy the local economy will be different yeah like if you're in a city or you're not in a city but what what can people do on it like a concrete action-based level if if they've already organized or if maybe they're just individuals how can people um engage in the political system especially if they're marginalized groups of people who don't tend to have political power yeah well that's a good question it's an age-old question that it's those who don't have power have no means to speak up and who's going to speak for them um, a few things come to mind. Uh, first is just the power of the vote to the extent that pe- people don't realize it. Voting is probably one of the most important things they can do for A, themselves, B, for their community, and C, for the society in general to move it in the direction that you would like it to be seen. Uh, so finding progressive candidates and backing them, uh, supporting them, volunteering for them uh, is something that is um, going to help, uh, has helped, will continue to help. Uh, But if people don't vote, they're not helping themselves. The the voting statistics, you know, I think the, the apathetic party is the most powerful party in the United States that people just don't vote. They say, oh, this doesn't apply to me. Or they're just not educated about how, how, how that could possibly help them. Another thing that comes to mind is just the power of collective bargaining, which has been the, you know, the successful story of the unions in America helping workers. Um, obviously, in recent years, they've de- declined in membership for a variety of reasons. One being globalization has put pressure on... Uh, jobs and outsourcing uh, so that uh, a lot of employers want to have um, union-free work places. Uh, but if they have a job where they can join a union, they will generally represent their interests in a way that uh, will help get them as a member of the, of the union, which is more specific to a job or, or a vocation, uh, b- benefits and bargaining power that they wouldn't have on their own. If you then extrapolate that model from uh, sort of the workplace to the political arena. Uh, Collective bargaining means creating coalitions of like-minded thinkers who have something in common for a goal to achieve. This is your community organizer, so get involved in your community uh, to see if uh, people can join together and it's that in effect has the parallel of acting to put pressure on city council members, county supervisors, state representatives, state governor, members of Congress, and the effects of having um, all the policies that that come into effect at all those levels of government be beneficial to people in need. Um, So unions have definitely declined significantly in America, whereas in other countries who have better um, compensation and benefits for their workers, unions have remained strong. Um, I was wondering, like an idea that I had would be if 
you could unionize the enormous segment of the population that is not being paid enough to survive at their job. That would be across companies, because I know many unions are company specific. Is that possible or how could people do something like that where it's a coalition of people who basically they're the thing that they have in common is that their job doesn't pay them enough to survive. Yeah, that um, if you, you think about it, what does a union do? They negotiate with the employers on behalf of the workers. So it's typically historically been uh, segmented into industries. There's the uh, transport union, the auto workers union, the laborers union, and so on. So that um, there would be an initial a difficult uh, way to organize that because who are they going to be negotiating with? So that's, if you were able to do that, who do they negotiate with then to improve conditions? It sounds like it would be um, a lot of different uh, entities, individuals of all sorts, the small businesses that hire a few people, uh, it could be governments. I think uh, government workers do have a union in most instances, so that may be of uh, limited uh, use. Uh, unemployment, uh, unemployed people, that's going to be hard to represent them. They have other benefits that come in place in terms of unemployment insurance and other things. Uh, but um, I think that's where I'm struggling to think of how that could be effective because there's, you would usually say, here's what we're representing and who do you present it to is, is the issue. I guess. One example could be if you had like a coalition of all food industry workers, fast food mm -hmm. and other food industry workers who are making somewhere around minimum wage, maybe a little bit higher. And yeah. if they're making more than minimum wage, they're usually not being given enough days and hours in the week to provide for them because um, I'm not even sure how that benefits the companies, but friends of mine have worked in that industry where they're only being given three days a week or um, they're getting paid minimum wage but then some of it comes from tips or whatever but I mean I think that's like a very broad group of people who they don't work for the same company but they work in the same industry um, and I, like you just think that their experiences must be common enough that they could either um, form some kind of coalition where they're striking for better rights and benefits or they're what I'm more interested in besides like appealing to the to the um, the companies themselves is appealing to the government to place regulations or standards in those industries um, because I think the government doesn't guarantee um, livable wages. Well, yeah, one example that comes to mind from what you're saying is some of the labor unions, I believe in France, put pressure on their government 10-something years ago to create a lower work week with the idea, so instead of everybody working 40 hours a week, you would work 35 hours a week and therefore there'd be some oppor openings, opportunity to, to fill the amount of work that needs to be done. Employers would have to hire more people to fit that. I don't know what, how successful that's been in terms of reducing unemployment uh, at the time. I think it's had some positive effect in that sense, but employers typically find ways to keep their costs low because they have to worry about profit margins and they always have this um, trump card to say, well, that's good, but if you put too many rules on me, I'm just gonna go put my plant in some other country where there's low wages. And that's, that's the whole issue of globalization, that it's sort of uh, created a hole in the American workforce that um, you know jobs, also, jobs can just be exported. Yeah, and also to the detriment of those companies where the factories are then placed, you hear stories like that in countries like Mexico where they allowed free trade and then their their workers were exploited and their economies were bled dry except for the 1% the at the top. 
Yeah, and the the companies that do that, it's their initiative to you know, which now gets to sort of the uh, the duties corporations have to maximize profits for their shareholders. That they're driven to lower their costs to improve their profits, and if they can outsource production workers or other other parts of their business to low cost uh, centers of business, uh, these. The reason they're lower is those workers have less protections than we are, are than Americans would have. They don't have to pay into Social Security. There's no uh, unemployment insurance. There's no medical benefits. There's not the usual things that a lot of American workers get, and that's why in other countries, uh, especially emerging market countries, there's uh, a lower cost of of wage uh, or of of labor that can be attractive to employers. So there's some. Something to be said for creating the right balance of incentives and perhaps uh, pressure uh, for corporate on corporations to um, allow for uh, some more pro- progressive labor practices so that they can improve conditions and wages for workers, but not feel enough to have to go f- outsource everything. Another thing that's just developed as well is the impact of technology that. Um, companies strive to be more efficient, and as they look to improve um, if uh, productivity levels, uh, they're imp- using more and more technology that has the effect of reducing the amount of jobs it's needed to do a certain task or process. And this is part of where education becomes more and more important. That workers are going, you know, really younger workers, especially, going to have to be. Uh, retooling themselves over time as the economy changes and what uh, the needs of the economy are that there's going to be fewer jobs of a certain type in the future and more need for other types of jobs that um, employers would find useful so that's again we talk about education being important that uh, that's a difficult thing to adjust because it's hard to stop technology when there's an innovative way to do something it's hard to regulate a company from not doing that. Well, I don't think there's any reason to do so. I I think a lot of people who have studied UBI, Universal Basic Income, like I read a book from Annie Lowry that was very interesting on that topic. Um, a lot of people aren't necessarily against automation and um, the economy changing, but I think the economy as it is now before like without these things having taken over these new technologies it's already so sick and unhealthy and it provides so little for the vast majority of people yeah and um you talked about the health or the the wellness of the economy um what about the wellness of the people and the earth and um i think uh, how can people um, advocate for those ideas um, above and beyond, you know, profit margins for CEOs and the, the kind of like competitive market that we see today? Like, how can we turn that ship around before it's too late and people are dying and the earth is being destroyed by corporate greed. Well, there's some models that come to mind that can start moving us in the direction you're pointing. Um, so, for example, the, the corporate laws are different in Anglo-Saxon countries than they are in, for example, continental European countries and maybe in other countries in Asia where um, unlike uh, Anglo-Saxon countries, U.S., Britain, Australia, that they just look at the shareholder's rights to get profits, uh, the businesses are allowed and expected to consider a broader range of interests, the workers, uh, the impact on the community, environmental uh, standards. Uh, So, for example, in Germany, they have their corporate code stipulates that uh, a certain amount of board seats are reserved for worker representation and the labor unions there have a say in running the company. It creates much more of an egalitarian environment. I believe they have that in Scandinavia too. Um, 
this is one example that being allowed legally to consider something beyond the bottom line profit would be useful to help affect policy changes or to use the uh, the machinery of companies or the the um, uh, corporate um, activities to help safeguard what's important in life uh, but um, it's it, it's a difficult equation to, to really bring into effect. I mean, this ties into another of the topics that I wanted to bring up, which is a maximum wage or a, a pay ratio cap for the um, upper executives of companies compared to the lowest paid workers. I mean, how, like, how did it even get so bad, I guess? Because we see horrific levels of wealth inequality today and there's there's so few pathways to earning even like an adequate salary each year um like there's the very very wealthy and that's very few people and there's the shrinking middle cla middle class and then you'll see job postings um required master's degree pay per hour $15 and you're just like well I have to get a PhD or I have to become another lawyer doctor engineer just like you know so many people are trying to get those jobs and whether they're even um necessary or like um like how many lawyers do we really need well, I, that's a good example of what value does society put on a different types of roles and jobs. Like, for example, what comes to mind is school teachers in the U.S. are not treated very well. Their compensation is not very, very high, and they're not given a high enough place in our society. But when, in fact, they have the most important job at teaching and educating and nurturing our children... Other countries treat it differently. Being an educator is revered and... Uh, there's a much higher level of income that, that is uh, typically paid for, for those jobs. Um, but the, the idea of uh, providing better measures of equality or approaching equality in wages and compensation, uh, this idea of having a pay ratio uh, would help to improve the if you have an overall pie of how many dollars can be paid to all the workers, more of it should be paid to, to all of the workers rather than a disproportionate amount to the senior leaders. Um, it seems that uh, statistically, uh, the executive compensation in the United States for, say, Fortune 500 companies is so excessive, exorbitant, uh, ludicrous compared to even executives in other countries around the world, in Europe and Asia, by magnitudes of a difference. How did that come to be? Um, there's, I think, certain elements that um, contributed to that. One was this idea of um, paying for performance. Corporations under this U.S. Anglo-Saxon version of fiduciary duties to, to the uh, derived profit for the shareholders. The idea is that you hire the best gun you can find to raise profits and that you pay them proportionately more, exorbitantly more when they have successful results, meaning profits for the company as opposed to some other measure like uh, worker productivity, um, all the contributions that can be made in a community, what, what, what kind of products does a corporation create, is it useful for society? But instead, uh, what would happen is a typical Fortune 500 uh, uh, executive CEO has a small salary, an incentive bonus, and then a performance bonus of a huge amount of stock options that can be awarded um, if certain measures and metrics are met for the company's um, financial performance. And what happens is there's a lot of 
um, kind of noise in that equation. So, for example, if a, if a company stock goes up 20%, the executive is then awarded a $100 million bonus. But it could be a red herring if all the stocks that year went up 20%. Did that executive really add value? So they've refined some of these measures over time that they have to exceed a benchmark. But again, it's just this, the idea that you're paying for performance uh, that allows for this runaway uh, compensation that then is, you know, can be nothing the next year or the performance can go down the following year. And, um, but it, it's kind of, you have to think about how corporations are set up. It's different, for example, if you're a one person business and you make millions and millions of dollars because you have a successful idea, nobody's telling you what to do with that. You're entitled to keep it. You may get taxed on it and this and that. But when you put it in a corporate form where there's lots and lots of people, there's other constituencies then that need to then be, be served uh, so that there, when there's a separation of ownership and control or management of the corporation, when you have a non-owner uh, running the corporation like these the CEOs would be, they then just have less responsibility for what, what they're overall having, having to do. So how can we change the way that corporations work now? Uh, that's a long-term project. Um, the corporate law is all state law and um, a lot of it runs from Delaware where most corporations in the U.S. are established because of their favorable pro-management uh, um, type of uh, pr provisions. Um, there could be the introduction of um, what we'd call stakeholder rights versus shareholder rights or a balance between shareholders and stakeholders. Stakeholders being everybody else the, the corporation comes in contact with, its employers, its vendors, its community where its facilities are, uh, and, and others that, that it impacts, its, its suppliers and its uh, customers, that it should have a a duty of sorts to them, um, in addition to running its business and hopefully making a profit, that would broaden its interest to consider uh, how uh, the impact of its operations and, and policies um, hit all these other types of constituencies out there. Um, other th you know, things that, that, that might address that is just adding in the things we've talked about earlier, higher wage uh, levels for employees, um, putting a cap on executive compensation, uh, having more benefits. One of the you know, th uh, uh, other things that were bad things that we had talked about earlier for not being able to have an affordable wage is there's really, that's a function of the, the cost of housing in a lot of these places. So other policy issues have to be addressed as well. It's not just limited to, to the corporations, I think, to, but they're you know a key part of how the American economy operates. So it would be a good start to, to work with them. Yeah, because I'm, I'm just thinking of corporations in particular because I'm thinking um, they employ a lot of people. Yeah. A lot of people have jobs at big companies where they're at one of the lowest or lower levels of mm. the company's hierarchical structure and they're left out of the most important decisions and people are working two jobs, people are working three jobs, people are like one job loss away from homelessness. Um, so yeah, I think a key thing that would help there too is you know uh, changing the uh, uh, way that people's medical benefits work that's tied to your job. It should be having a socialized medicine instead where if you lose your job, you don't lose your health care. 
which is in this time of coronavirus, a horrible thing. A lot of companies are having to lay people off, and when that happens, you lose your medical benefits, and you're out there on your own. Perfect storm. Yeah, facing the the coronavirus with no medical insurance. So, other countries provide models how to do that. Canada, most of Europe, uh, but you know we have um, resistance to that here, unfortunately. So that comes through. I think only the political will to change it is how that'll get done. So really, what will it take again? Like, I'm creating this podcast. Like, probably most of the listeners are just individuals, probably close to my age, activists on social media trying to change this corrupt, unfair world that they live in. What can these people do? How can they collaborate with each other to? influence policy that would maybe regulate um, the the behavior of corporations or the distribution of wealth within a corporation or um, how can they um, advocate for rent control in high rent areas Um, what can they do to take their lives into their own hands and advocate for their fellow humans and citizens or not citizens i don't really care if you're a citizen or not people uh, that are people out there. who live here yes there's uh it's certainly frustrating there's several things that can be done but what effect they'll have will vary um first is just being educated educate yourself about what the issues are and what are possible ways to address them and uh, think about who benefits from the way the laws work now. That may be obvious, but uh, that's where it shows what what, um, uh, lobbying can do to influence uh, what the laws and the uh, the policies are that that affects uh, people. Um, organizing in a way, you know, certainly protesting can help, but it may have a limited impact, but it has some impact. You think about where it takes a while for the influencers in the world of some of the corporations to get it that if it's good for their business, then they'll adopt the policy. A good thing that comes to mind is environmentalism. A long time ago, people Companies were dumping sludge in the river. The Erie River caught fire, and so slowly there was a public demand for environmental laws. And then later, companies got the idea that green cells. So right, they, we call this greenwashing when a green, company yeah. is um, trying to create a green image of themselves, but ultimately um, their practices aren't particularly helpful Green. or they're just they're really designed as a selling point it's rather marketing. than yeah but it's it's the type of thing that companies will see that it's in their own interest to shift their own behaviors because it's what their customers which are these people you're talking about want and will demand from them for them to be successful the second thing then is to as you were talking about earlier organizing and voting for candidates that will affect this kind of change. You can't underestimate that. That's an indirect thing to do and it takes time. But I think there's really no silver bullet magic bean that'll just uh, make this happen overnight. It takes a long, concerted, organized effort to get attention, raise awareness, be educated about uh, what the issues are and who who are who has their hands in the levers of power and put pressure on them to all of them to change their ways having transparency in those processes will uh, shed light on some of these injustices i think that's where when things come to light they're hard to justify and um, um, it's it's an ongoing struggle i mean for example if we um created some kind of committee or um, group and targeted one of these issues, let's say um, minimum wage, living wage, um, in in a specific geographic location like Los Angeles where we live. Um, Could we get like a meeting with the mayor to present 
information like what what would be what would people have to do how do they get their foot in the door when they're just lay people basically who are not um uh pursuing a career in politics and don't have access to these people i mean also one thing you told me a little while ago when we were talking about these issues is that um essentially you you cannot um be uh a lobbyist unless you have enormous quantities of wealth so that's almost like out of the option for us like lobbying well lobbyists paid lobbyists are typically retained by the corporate interests that have deep pockets to pay them to perpetuate their interests but lobbying can be done um you know through any means possible political pressure on um, elected officials uh the instance you you mention it's having I, I would say community groups can put some pressure on local officials like the mayor of los angeles he has a very tight schedule it's hard to get access to his calendar uh, exactly and there he, there has to be a perceived need for something uh that then needs to be undertaken uh so i mean i'm not a community organizer but that's what comes to mind is that a concerted group of community activists uh, petitioning the government, the, the the mayor, regularly and repeatedly on a lot of fronts. Now that may may, may be helpful, but it takes a lot of energy, and um, people are very busy and are just living their lives and trying to get by. And this takes effort and energy to to do all this. It's 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 a problem. Yeah, it's an uphill battle, and there. I mean, probably some people would agree they they keep these workers so busy. They keep us working a 40-hour work week at three jobs. Um, so we don't have the time or energy to change the status quo because it's not in the vested interests of the upper elite powers that be. And I think uh, at least right now, maybe people have more free time not to organize in large groups but um individually as many people are still at home some people are not and they're um every day being exposed to people at their work if they work in food service or um the grocery store um but people some people have said that like the reason that the the protests that are still happening have been able to happen is because for the first time in I don't know how long, people, a lot of people are not at work. Yeah, people have uh, time and uh, they have uh, the ability to step back in this unprecedented kind of time to think about what their lives are like, what's happening, how they're impacted here, and make some connections uh to stay in touch with the fact that we're not out there able to you know uh, get involved or be with other people very much uh so that um a lot of change comes from passion people's emotional reaction to things and then when there's a spontaneous surge of uh people rising up to protest something when it's when you're viewed as just another interest group then you can be switched aside or thrown a bone or deflected somehow. Uh, but uh, when a lot of people get that, it's, it's just sort of having that net network effect that when everybody starts to chime in, it's hard for the politicians to ignore that because they can see themselves getting voted out of office. <laughs> That's often what motivates them to, oh, well, this will help get reelected if I take this stand or that stand, and that, you know they have to see that there's enough interest in, in the people's um, uh, desire to have you know speak up for a change. Okay, um, let's talk about universal basic income. Did we cover that already? A little bit, but. Um, I wanted to talk more about, um, I saw that they're starting a pilot program and the, one of the top people, billionaires from Twitter 
is personally funding this project to have some kind of UBI in several cities across America. Uh-huh. It's not like a, um, what I would call like a true UBI, I think, because I'm not sure if everybody in this city is going to get it. That would be the U, the universal, which means that in a true UBI, um, every person, every citizen, or um, every individual is receiving a certain amount of money, um, even though um, they're receiving money that's not tied to whether they're performing a job. Um, So you would just be getting like maybe $500 a month or $1,000 every month for um, just nothing, for not doing anything, but to allow you to cover your basic expenses of living. It basically is a policy that says everyone should have the means to survive whether they work or not. Um, And so that's going to be implemented in a few cities, including Los Angeles. I don't know when it starts, but... um, That sounds like that program would have targeted groups that will get it, it, because you can't give all 4 million people in Los Angeles, you know, that they'd have to pay for that, but... uh, that that would run out pretty fast but it's i think to I, I haven't read on that one but if that one is designed to show that it can work and have a positive effect because i think there's more uh data that needs to be collected and verified of the effectiveness of ubi in terms of improving people's uh standard of living and then that then translates into uh, what you call a multiplier effect in a community that they circulate that money and that and that puts money in the hands of, of uh, other people that run businesses or uh, uh, provide goods or services in a community and then that um, uh, it creates it starts a, a virtuous circle or, or cycle in, in, in itself there yeah I see it as like a scaffolding that says we will mm-hmm. not allow our civilization or our people to fall under the level of survival. Like we will, as a country or as whatever entity, provide for the people enough so that they have housing, food, um, and other basic amenities. And beyond that, obviously they can work and most of them probably will choose to work because they want Um, additional income on top of that or they like working most people don't like actually not working or being unemployed Um, and so it's just like it's kind of like a a guarantee um, that you know if you live in this country you won't um, suffer yeah, it's, it's, it's another version of the social uh, safety net, which um, is more self-directed because people are given the funds directly and they know what they need the most and the best and versus a government agency deciding, well, you'll get so much in food stamps, so much in a housing benefit, so much in a tax break uh, that then they have to apply for and it's complicated uh, putting money in people's hands uh, has 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 a beneficial effect that way now whether that can get scaled up to broader and broader levels has to be based on verification that it, it, it's efficient at some level and then how you pay for it are the questions that remain to be seen. Um, but one clear thing is, you know, the people in the United States may just have to pay more taxes. The rich people may have to pay more taxes to support something like this because it'll ultimately benefit all of society. It does. Um, I, I'm reading a book that I haven't finished which touches on the topic of inequality and how actually... Um, when uh, when there's greater levels of equality in a society, all levels of society benefit, including the upper class and the, the wealthy elite. They actually, their lives um, statistically improve when they don't have much more wealth 
than the poor people. Yeah, um, there, there are social, emotional, uh, medical, psychological benefits of living in an equal society. And when you live in an unequal society, uh, those societies will have higher rates of every bad measure of health, emotional stability, um, uh, well-being in, in, in general, I think is, is, is what that study shows. And it's across the board on a hundred or more different measures. I saw something online that said um, Jeff Bezos has enough wealth to pay for every single American's cancer treatment and still be a billionaire. And I think huh. about that. And I think when you really, um, it can be um, maybe uh, not alienating, but like it can be um, vague or abstract when you think about the, the really rich people. But when you look at the numbers, and you see what those numbers could mean, what value that money has, if it could be given to people who actually need it, instead of percolating in the hands of a sick, greedy individual who thinks that because they're an American and they had an idea and they pursued their dream and they pay their workers terrible wages, and um, work them to death in warehouses across the United States that they think that um, that that's okay. Um, just think, um, do like a little bit of math and you see where that money could go and what it could do. And I think um, we need to take responsibility um, to limit that that individual. Well, that's what um, some proposals for so-called wealth tax would do. And this, unlike an income tax where the money you make uh, each year, a certain amount is paid for taxes, this taxes the accrued wealth that a person or family has uh, uh, created over their life or over generations, uh, so that it's another form of um, income redistribution or wealth redistribution, I should say, uh, so that, uh, and it can be very pro progressive. I think like Elizabeth Warren was, uh, when she was running for uh, president, was proposing this. Uh, and there's, they have this in some other countries where, you know, over a certain very high level of wealth, say $50 million, some small percent of it gets paid to the government each year for intentional redistribution to pay for services, education, medical care uh, for people of lower means. And that's um, that actually has a very populist angle to it there. If that was put to as a proposition, say like in states like California that allow prop, a voter propositions, it would pass by a landslide because that's the power of the vote. There's a lot of there's a lot more people that have under fifty million dollars of wealth <laughs> that would vote for it, and many fewer that have over fifty million dollars that would say, "Hey, wait a second, I don't like this." All of a sudden, and oppose it. Um, and you know, they would challenge it on God knows what grounds, constitutional grounds. <laughs> uh, it's uh, un-American, it's, uh, you know, communist or something, but uh, this is uh, one way to pay for uh, a lot of the change we need to see in, in, in this country. So how could we put that proposition on the California ballot? <laughs> well, that's, there's a whole ballot process. You have to get 100,000 signatures, you have to get a backer, you have to write a rule file a bunch of papers and uh, it would be just that, you know, the people vote for, or the proposal is to vote for a change in the California taxation code that says, you know, over a certain amount of income, you have to pay a progressive amount, uh, you know, that, that could be higher and higher, that it really affects only the billionaires and that, that would be chump change to them every year, but would add up, you know, a bill, as I used to say, a billion here and a billion there, and pretty soon you're talking serious money. <laughs> so, another idea. I know um, 
Ted Liu has uh, championed a universal basic income as part of his platform. Do you know much about that? Uh, no, no, I don't. I, I haven't read that. But um, uh, there's many proponents. Uh, it's growing um, in sort of interest level and um, kind of a growing head of steam here. There's probably variations between the components of a program that could be considered. But um, if he's planning to introduce a bill in Sacramento, power to him. Could it be done just in, for example, California? Yeah, you could have that as a local pro because those programs are going to be more local because they, they, they can be adjusted better for demographic groups. California has a wide diversity of demographic groups um, so that um, you could... Um, you know, you, you could make it be like a mirror image of what the property tax rules look like so that property taxes are higher in wealthy neighborhoods because the property is worth more. So you could have an effect where in different uh, districts based on the demographics and the, and the, me, you know, the median income of people, they could be paid more or less as they might need. For, for something like like uh, that on, under a U, UBI program. So you're thinking like um, in a low income area, would they get more money or less? Yes, no, no, I'm saying it would be a mirror, but it would be reversed image because it's oh. like, it's progressive when you collect the tax, but it would be progressive the other way when you give it out. So in lower incomes, you get more because you need more. Right, not because you live in a yeah, lower no, no, income yeah, area, you no, get no. less. You would actually get more right. because you yeah. have higher need. Yeah, exactly. Okay, that makes sense. Um, okay, do you have any final thoughts on these topics and especially thinking about actionable steps? Like, people have talked about this stuff to death, like, yeah. They talk about it and they talk about how could we do this, but what can we actually physically with our physical bodies do to make the world more equitable? Vote. <laughs> that is clearly the thing in every person's power. Assuming you're if you're not registered, go register right away. Uh, and then educate yourself on who which candidates speak for these issues. Uh, visit them, talk to them and send, you know, support them. And then for the ones that are in office, otherwise put pressure on them, write a letter. Uh, the more people that do it, it's hard for them to ignore it. Again, their own self-interest dictates they want to get reelected. So if they see there's lots of people that are interested in a particular issue and they didn't vote that way, uh, they, they, we have a representative form of government. So our representatives uh, are the ones who decide on these things supposedly in our in the people's interest so the people have to speak up and be heard okay thank you for speaking with me um you are my dad and, <laughs> and you and you work um you studied policy and law and you have a particular um area of knowledge around like corporate practices and law, so that's why I wanted to talk with you about these topics. Okay. Well, let every... people know what they might like to know. Okay. Glad to be of uh, service and to participate in this uh, rockin' podcast. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.